Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Burning Heart. Okay, this might be strange, but bubble wrap is sort of addicting, isn't it? However, it should only be used to occupy boredom or ship a set of crystal stemware. But too often we use a kind of spiritual bubble wrap to shield our soul from suffering, difficulty, and tribulation. Yet God's word makes it plain that he has appointed suffering in our life in order to bring forth greater joy and delight in him. We must embrace his means of purging, cleansing, and refining us into the image of his beloved son, Jesus. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Burning Heart. Originally, I had this message titled, in fact, for two weeks, it was titled The Martyr's Pastor. That if I was the pastor of an underground church in China or an underground church in the Sudan, what would I say to you? And you could say, well, you're not, so you don't need to say it. If we are not prepared for suffering, we will fail when the suffering comes. We will treat it as an inconvenience. We will treat it as a threat to our livelihood as opposed to expecting it and receiving it with open arms saying this comes as a natural outflow of us taking a stand for Jesus Christ and us becoming uh, new creatures in Christ. The burning heart. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with Christian history, there is a statement throughout Christian history, and it's, it's been used in different ways, but it's called the fellowship of the burning heart or the children of the burning heart. Uh, A.W. Tozier was known to use that phrase often. Oswald Chambers referenced it often. It seemed to flow out of the deeper life uh, community, those that were saying, I'm all in for Jesus Christ. I don't care what it costs me. So we're going to talk about the burning heart. It's the It'd be the description, the fellowship of the burning heart, or the fellowship of those that are making their lives open and available to martyrdom. I want to introduce you to two different hearts, if you will, that make up the burning heart. And the first one I want to introduce you to is the lion heart, which I happen to be very attracted to a statement like the lion heart. Uh, it makes you think of great kings that were, you know, led their men into battle in the past. They're lion hearted. Well, the lion heart, I would like to describe first and foremost, uh, is God. And both of the attributes I'm going to describe as the hearts, I'm going to introduce you to the lion heart and the lamb heart, are both God. And they seem to be oil and water. How in the world could they ever coexist? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. The lion heart. The lion heart resists the devil and responds to temptation with fury and fire and fury. And so the lion heart is going to be a symbol of fire, okay? It burns out anything that is not of purity and perfection. This is God. Whether we like it or not, this is who he is. He is a lion heart. You know, the Bible in the New Testament says two very different things, and they seem to contradict themselves. It says, resist the devil, and he will flee. And then... Right when we think we have this all figured out, it says, resist not evil. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a little confused here. It says, when someone hits you on this cheek, turn to them the other also. And then, both Paul and Jesus are struck on a cheek, and they don't turn the other one. What? Uh, um, do you see a contradiction there? It may seem as a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. First, we start with the lion heart resists the devil and responds to temptation with, fury, with fire and fury. When the enemy makes his assault against your soul, when he baits you with temptation, when sin is, in, is in tempting to encroach upon 
the sanctity of the human soul, what do you do? You don't pat it on the, on the head and say, good boy. You hit it in the teeth, and that's the lion heart. It growls to protect the soul for the glory of Jesus Christ. The lamb heart. Now, remember how I just went out of my way to say the lion heart is God Almighty? Well, so is the lamb heart. It resists not evil and responds to the fire and fury of the human persecutors with rivers of living water. So whereas the lion heart is fire, the lamb heart is living water. Okay, this will all come together. I'm just laying some raw materials out because I'm going to build on this the entire time. And so resists not evil and responds to the fire and fury of the human persecutors. When people come against us with fire and fury, we respond not with an equal fire and fury in response, not to retaliate. They give us a blow to our cheek, we give them a blow to theirs. They pluck out our eye, we pluck out theirs. No, but we respond to these human persecutors with rivers of living water. Okay, And that will make sense as we progress as well. The lamb heart rejoices in the opportunity to yield up the body for the glory of Jesus Christ. The lion heart responds with fire and fury, growls, and says, you will not touch this soul, this inner sanctum of purity. You will not touch it with your disease of sin. But then the lamb heart rejoices and delights in being offered up as a sacrifice. It rejoices in the fact that it too can suffer in body as Christ did. Doesn't this seem like a strange paradox? How can you have both? It seems that you must specialize in one or the other. Let's either be the lion heart or the lamb heart. I'm, a, I'm one of the lion hearts. And then you have all these other weak people over there that are the lamb hearts. You know, it's like, yeah, if the church of Jesus Christ didn't have us lion hearts, you know, you'd be in serious trouble. We're the ones that are protecting all of you. Lamb hearts. Both and, not one or the other. So let's go into, first of all, the lion heart, the forging of the lion heart. Remember what I liken this to? I liken this to fire. And then we liken the lamb heart to water. Okay? Fire and water, the two purifying elements of God, and they're also the, the two destructive elements of evil. Okay? Water was used to save the children of Israel as they crossed uh, the Red Sea, I should start back earlier. Water was used to save Noah and to purify the world, and it was literally death and destruction to all those that opposed God. Okay, And then you have the water of the Red Sea that was the salvation, the way of salvation for the Israelites, and it was the way of destruction for the Egyptian Calvary. Okay, And then you have fire. Fire is either that which purifies and refines and removes dross or it is that which turns to ash and destroys. There are two fires that come from God, one that purifies the saints and one that judges the unrighteous. Okay, so we have fire and water. The forging of the lion heart, the fire side of Christianity. God, the holy fire. So introducing the holy fire, the consuming fire of God. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Oof. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For our God is a consuming fire. That's fact. Scriptural fact. He's not just water for a parched 
and weary land. He is fire. In the end, he is not going to destroy the earth with a flood. He's already done that. The next time he comes to destroy it with fire. Yeah, meek and gentle. Jesus will destroy it with fire. Okay? Pentecost. Now, when you think of Pentecost, you think of a flame of fire. It's fire. It is. But you know what Pentecost is in the Hebrew calendar? There are six seasons in the Hebrew calendar, and Pentecost falls into a season called the harvest. At the very beginning of the harvest, there was something called the barley harvest, or Passover. Fifty days later, near the end of the harvest season, you have something called Pentecost. It is when the wheat is ripened, and it is gathered into the barns, and is the time for threshing, where the chaff is removed, and then the burning of chaff. Pentecost is a very, very significant day in Christianity, just as Passover is. Most of us don't ever think of it this way. It's sort of a nice-sounding thing. Oh, God is coming and dwelling amongst us. And in us, and you know what he is? He is a consuming fire. Gulp. So Pentecost, the ripening of wheat, the time for threshing and burning chaff. Matthew 3 gives us a foreshadow of this. He, speaking of Jesus, and this is John the Baptist talking, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Okay, I don't know who's excited about that. I mean, the Holy Ghost is a little weird sounding to start with to some of us. Like, Holy Ghost, couldn't it be Holy Spirit? I just took it straight out of one translation. Sorry about that. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Does that make you feel better? And with fire. Not just the Holy Spirit, but with fire. Well, what does that mean? What's he going to do? Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, most of us are just thinking about this fact that, oh, well, we get baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Our God is a consuming fire, and anything that is not of his nature will get burned up. Don't you know who you're inviting in? Did no one tell you that he's a holy fire? I, I, I thought he was a river of living water. Oh, he is. But he's making a place for that river of living water to come forth from. Now, this language here doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we didn't grow up in an agrarian society. We don't thresh wheat. When we have a combine that is going through a wheat field, it does all the threshing and removal of chaff as it's going. So we don't even understand this. Whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. Whose floor? Jesus is the thresher. His fire will do its work and gather his wheat into the garner. What's it talking about? That's Pentecost right there. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then he starts talking about threshing and gathering in wheat and purging and removing chaff. What's that? That's Pentecost to a Hebrew. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. A brief history of the temple. Now, this is going to seem like I'm going in a different direction here for a second. But we're talking about the lion heart, and we're talking about the fact that it's fire. So this is the forging of the lion heart. God desires you to have a lion heart. Remember what the name of this message was? The burning heart. 
okay? The fellowship of the burning heart, the children of the burning heart. How do you become part of that fellowship? Well, you need this fire, okay? So I'm going to give you a brief history of the temple so you'll understand something very important here. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, okay? So the temple was built on Mount Moriah, the very same place that was used as a sacrifice by Abraham. So this is a place where the temple is being built, and it's already been showcased to be a place of sacrifice, okay? That's important. Where the Lord appeared unto David his father. And this is also the place where God appeared unto David when he was wiping out Jerusalem with a plague and David was repenting and God stopped over the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he stopped right there, hallmarked. And David says, whoa. So he went to this threshing floor and bought it with 50 shekels of silver. 50, the number of Pentecost. Okay, the number of Jubilee, the clearing of all debts. So this is where David, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. The temple of God was built on a threshing floor. That is not an accident. It is a place of sacrifice and threshing. <clears throat> I don't know if I should give you the foreshadow of who you are, but you are the temple of God. Just brace yourself for that one. The tribular the threshing instrument of Pentecost. And so the wheat is gathered in, and it must be purified. It must be perfected. What's wrong with it? It's just poor wheat. It didn't do anything wrong. There's something wrong with the wheat. And it's not really wrong. It's that it's not yet made perfect for that which it's useful, that which it's meant to be used for. Say it's going to be used for bread. Well, you don't want chaff in your bread. The chaff must be removed. It must be perfected. It must be purified. Out comes the tribular. Does that word remind you of anything? Tribular. Tribulation. Okay, now most of us, when we hear the word tribulation, cringe, okay? Because we grew up in a certain Christian culture which always used that word, like, in the tribulation cometh. They need to use the King James with that, and it causes even a greater fear when the oof at the end of come uh, appears. It's like, cometh? Oh, no! <laughs> Could you imagine the wheat? Do you think the wheat is afraid of the tribular? It's an interesting question. It might not feel good to have chaff removed, but is it harmful to the wheat? Is the tribulation harmful to the wheat? No, it betters the wheat. I want you to realize the enemy has pulled something over the church of Jesus Christ in America. We are afraid of the tribular because we think it damages us somehow. We think it is harmful to us, when in actuality it is that which helps us become what we ought to be. The tribular is a threshing instrument. It literally beats against the wheat or the corn or you know, whatever it is that has the husk or that needs to be removed. For the purification of the wheat, there is a need of a threshing instrument. This is exactly what is foreshadowed when John is saying, the one that comes after me, he doesn't baptize you with water. He baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. What's, what's that he's talking about? He's talking about the mighty rushing wind that blows against this wheat where it's thrown up into the air, it's, it's broken, and then all the chaff, the wheat falls to the ground, but all the chaff, which is lighter than the wheat, gets blown away with the fan and into the flames of fire, and it is purged. Every grain of wheat has an appointment with the tribular, the threshing instrument. This, I just want you to stop there for a second. Every grain of wheat has an appointment with the tribular. 
Now you're, I, I don't really want that appointment. Sort of like when you're a little kid and you find out you have an appointment with the dentist. Every little kid has an appointment with the dentist. Similar, but this is good news. So is the dentist, okay? We as kids don't always appreciate the dentist. Dentists are a lot better now than they were back in my day, too. Every grain of wheat has an appointment with the tribular, the threshing instrument, or if corn, beneath the trampling hooves of oxen. How would you like to be the corn? It's like, I'll, I, I'll choose the wheat. I'll be a wheat, a uh, grain of wheat. If you're corn, you're like, yeah, I'd like to be corn. It's like, well, you get trampled under the feet of oxen to be, uh, to be purged. When the grain was threshed, it was winnowed by being thrown up against the wind and afterwards tossed with wooden scoops. The shovel and the fan for winnowing are mentioned in Psalm 35.5, Job 21.18, and Isaiah 17.13. The refuse of straw and chaff was burned. Freed from impurities, the grain was then laid up in granaries till used. Wheat. By the way, that's you. To bring about much fruit, what does it say about a corn of wheat? Well, it says it must fall into the ground and die. For your life to produce fruit of any kind, what is true about it? It must fall into the ground and die. I remember that one statement uh, by an evangelist from New Zealand. He said, true resurrection life is on the far side of the cross. If you want life, you must go through the cross to get to it. It's just a principle of the kingdom. How about to make bread? To make bread, to be useful for that which you were originally created. Remember Jesus, Bethlehem is called the house of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. He has made bread, life, sustenance to those around him. Well, how does, how does a, a grain of wheat become useful to make bread? It must be threshed and its chaff broken away. Are these bad things? Well, they don't feel too good. They sort of seem bad. They're not bad. We just need to grow up as the church of Jesus Christ and get a backbone, face the truth, and start getting a smile on our face. Yeah. I need to die to find life. It's just a fact. Yeah, and guess what? This chaff needs to be removed for me to become as I ought to be. Remove it, God. The lion heart. So here's a summary of the lion heart. It's the floor of wind and fire where the wheat is purified and perfected and chaff is removed and burned up. That which is impure and imperfect is not allowed to remain. And this is what God builds within us. He gives you a lion heart. He gives you fire within. And that fire is dogged in its determination to see purity remain in the soul. And it will not kowtow. It will not curry the favor of the world that doesn't care about the opinions of this world. It desires to have purity in its innermost part. Test these hearts and reins, God. Purify me and keep out the darkness. It's watchful of the soul. It is vigorous. It has a fire and a fury to purify all chaff. The forging of the lamb heart. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? You see, God comes in in a fire. And what's that fire for? To refine, to purify, to remove dross, which we just called chaff. To drive it out, to purify our inner life. But God is more than just a fire. God must send forth a fire to purify his saints to judge his saints. His judgment begins in the house of God. And he begins to judge all that is rebellious to his kingdom inside of you. If there's any thought, he will find it. If there's any shadow, he will shine light into it. He's a lion. He's a fire. But then, he's also a lamb. 
Our God could just judge us for all of eternity. We are all worthy of eternal separation from him and hellfire. That's what we're worthy of. And yet, he is a lamb. If he was just a holy fire, we would have been burned up a long time ago. We would not even be talking today. He is a lamb. He can choose which face he, set, he sets forth towards you. And he has chosen in this generation to set forth a face of a lamb. And to say, please, let me rescue you. Let me give you of my love. Let, I want you to share in the fullness of my joy and my peace. Come, enter into my rest. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, what is the fruit? What is the evidence of that? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such there is no law. I want to go into, remember how I said the lion heart is the fire and the lamb heart is the river of life. I want to just cover the river of life here real quick in Scripture. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Now, just as a foreshadow, a lot of these are in Old Testament, where they are giving a foreshadow of that which is you. You are the tabernacle of the Most High God. And it talks about a river that gushes forth out of the innermost sanctuary. You become the holy of holies when you allow God in. Yes, the holy fire of God dwells within you. But then what is to come out of you? Is fire supposed to come out of you? We are not fire-breathing dragons. That isn't what a Christian is. We do not bring death and destruction around us, but rather we bring life. Jesus is the almighty fire of God. However, what came out of him was life and life abundant. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valleys of Shittim. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For what? For sin and for uncleanness. Well, what is this fountain? It's Jesus. You know who the temple of God is? Who the body of Christ truly is? It's Jesus. And he was opened up, literally. Through his side was pierced. He was opened. But what came out? Life. Your healing life. And there was a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That day happened. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. Where did it proceed from? Proceeding out of the throne of God. What a strange place for a river, for a fountain to gush, gush forth from, from the throne. Do you know that you have a throne in your life? A place of control a place of mastery, a place of kingship. Sin is when you sit on that throne. And I guarantee you, there's no river of life gushing out from underneath that throne when you sit on it. There's death and disease that comes gushing forth from your life, and that's it. Polluted waters. But when you allow Jesus Christ to have that throne, he changes that which comes out of you. The innermost, 
There's a spot in you in your being that God considers the innermost. I would liken this to the throne room, the holy of holies, the spirit. It is the dwelling place of God, the chamber of intimacy. And the word belly in John 7:38 is innermost. That's what it means. He that believes on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his innermost shall flow rivers of living water. For you are that temple. And that throne is in you. You are the tabernacle of the Most High God. Anyone who believes in Almighty God, out of him will flow rivers of living water. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Who are we talking about? Jesus. This is the cross. And forthwith came there out blood and water. This is an amazing scene. Now, first of all, blood and water are both symbolic of life and cleansing. Okay? But they're also an amazing picture of fire and water. You see, something was taking place on that cross. There was a fire that gushed forth from God that literally condemned and judged sin in the flesh. All darkness was defeated. And yet, that same life that poured out of Jesus that judged the enemy is what saves you. And there is a very important Picture here that is taking place. Because how did that life come out of Jesus? How was that life made available? How was sin judged? How was evil overcome? And how did we receive the benefit of the cross? It's through suffering. No other way. There is a river that God will place inside of you. But the way that that river is released and comes forth to bless this world is through one means and one means only. And that is through suffering. It's the pierced side that allows that life to gush forth. Listen to Luke 6 and you'll begin to see this river coming forth. Blessed are you when men shall hate you. That's a strange time to be blessed and supremely happy, which is what the word blessed means. When men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil. You know, most of us aren't feeling too good when those things are happening. He says, blessed are you for the Son of Man's sake. Now, all of those things, as long as it's for the Son of Man's sake, he said, blessed are you. Listen to this line. Rejoice you in that day. And leap for joy. The word leap is a gusher. It's a word of a fountain breaking forth and and shooting upwards. I always think of Goofy sitting on top of one of those uh, oil rigs. And then Goofy's on top of bouncing. That's my mental picture for leap for joy. The word is agaleio. And it's a fountain breaking forth. Well, if you don't have a fountain inside of you at that day, guess what? There's no fountain breaking forth. But God's saying... In that day, when you do this for my sake, when you suffer for me, there is a fountain. Let it come out. Leap for joy. It's the exact opposite response that any of us would ever dream of having. And in America, we haven't been taught this. And as a result, when any of these things happen to us, we complain, we moan, and we groan. Yet this is our moment. This is what we're here for. Praise God. Leap for joy. Rejoice in that day. Blessed are you. That's Jesus talking. Can Jesus lie? No. 
What's he talking about then? I say we put aside our biases towards suffering and start allowing him to remake our mindsets. The lamb heart. Now, this is a summary of the lamb heart. It's the fountain broken open within the innermost chamber of intimacy. It's a love bursting forth, a joy uncontained, a bubbling up of living water that must go out and pour forth. It's the life of Jesus within, joyfully gushing forth with every opportunity the end of the spear affords. It's not that we go looking for the end of a spear. We know it's coming. And we wait for it with bated breath. Lord Jesus, may I suffer for you. And I know that sounds backwards. Lord Jesus, may I suffer for you. What most of us pray is, Lord Jesus, save me from any suffering. Which prayer is correct with Scripture? Paul, as you will, well, I'll, I'll let the, the message uh, go do it. The fellowship of the burning heart. This is, this is what I s- summarize them as. It's the, a sacred league of lion-hearted lambs with pierced sides. In other words, what's coming out of them? Life. A river of living water is gushing forth in their innermost. They have pierced sides. They're the suffering ones. It's the fellowship of the burning heart. They have life within, and it is constantly gushing out. This is an endless fountain. And when you are touched, when you are pricked by this world, out comes love, out comes joy, out comes peace, out comes the fruit of God within you. Who's in you? Don't you know that you are literally the dwelling place of Almighty God? And this very lamb heart of God is intended to come gushing forth out of you? And there's the parched earth and the parched souls around you, and they are moistened? and brought to life in and through that which can come out of you? The fellowship of the burning hearts. There's a question mark after that. Fellowship of the burning heart? How will you recognize them? How would you recognize someone who is of the fellowship of the burning heart? I'm going to go through the New Testament, and I'm going to give you 30 defining attributes to the fellowship of the burning heart. These are those with pierced side who leap when they are touched by the spear. They are those who are armed with the same mind as Christ was armed. And by the way, I would highly encourage you to get the notes online when this one comes out and study each one of these. I mean, they are so profound. They are those who are armed with the same mind as Christ was armed. Literally armed, like for military maneuver. He is armed with a mindset. What is that mindset? Prepared to suffer in the body. I am prepared to suffer. When you become a Christian, you're prepared to suffer. We don't have that in our gospel anymore because we live in America. Why do you need to include that? They are those who do not consider it strange to encounter fiery trials. Almost every single one of us in here considers it strange when we face fiery trials. When the fire and the fury of the enemy comes against us, we consider it strange. Not the fellowship of the burning heart. They are those who rejoice for the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. They are those who are unashamed of the fact that they suffer for righteousness. They are those who consider it the highest privilege to fill up in their bodies what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. They are those who are immovable and undaunted in affliction, for they know that they are commissioned, even appointed, to suffering, affliction, and tribulation. They are those who are troubled on every side, yet do not get distressed. Those who are perplexed, but do not despair. Persecuted, but are not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. They are those that are always bearing about in their body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in their body. They are those that yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and desire to be conformed to his death. What kind of weirdo would want that? 
They are those that yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus, thank you for your sufferings, but you know what? They can be your sufferings. I can worship them and you know, worship you for doing it, and I can look at them from 2,000 years distance, and I say, I'm glad you did it and not me. There are those that yearn to share in the fellowship of his sufferings and desire to be conformed to his death. There are those who are not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, but are partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. By the way, these are all scriptures, and if any of you are familiar with them, you're seeing them. It's like, yeah, just because I put the, they are those in front does not mean they're not scriptures. That's why I have them there. I want you to research this. 11, they are those that know that all things, whether it be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, or any other affliction, work together for good to them that love God, to them that are, that are the called according to his purpose. 12, they are those that accept with joy the fact that for Christ's sake they are killed all the day long, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Have you ever thought about that? It's like, how do you feel about the fact that uh, we Christians are killed all the day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter? Well, the fellowship of the burning heart considers it an honor. 13, they are those that know that all afflictions and all trials shall turn to their salvation through prayer and through the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. They are those that are utterly confident that they shall not be ashamed for the confidence they have placed in Jesus Christ. And whether it's by life or by death, Christ shall be magnified in their body. They are those that know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. They are those that are gladly spent for the glory of God and faint not through the difficult trials, imprisonments, and the many afflictions. They are those that are confident that as suffering and afflictions tear down and decompose their outward body, their inward man is renewed day by day. They are those that know that their current afflictions work for them a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. They are those that know that if their earthly house, their body, were dissolved, that they have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. There are those that will gladly spend their bodies and spill their blood because of love for Jesus Christ and for his body, the church. There are those that rejoice and are exceeding glad when they are reviled, persecuted, and all manner of evil is spoken against them falsely for the sake of Jesus Christ. There are those that rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. There are those that are exceeding joyful in all their tribulation. There are those that consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds. There are those that know that where the sufferings of Christ abound, so the consolation, comfort, and satisfaction of Christ abounds. There are those whose hope is steadfast and whose endurance is strong, though they be pressed out of measure, above their human strength to handle, insomuch that they despair even of life. There are those whose boast is in their Christ, his sufferings, and the fact that they are privileged to share in the fellowship of those sufferings, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often with scourging, stoning, stripes, beatings, shipwrecks, perils, weariness, painfulness, watchings, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, and nakedness. There are those that endure all things for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the elect. They are those that do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in them. They are those that know it was fitting for Jesus to become perfect through suffering, and it is also fitting for them to be perfected in the same manner. Let me just read the last one again, uh, just in case you started to blur over. Because 30, that's just a lot. I can't handle this. Let's read the last one again. They are those that know it was fitting for Jesus to become perfect through suffering. And it is also fitting for them to be perfected in the same manner. The pattern of the burning heart. How is the burning heart built? 23 of the 30 above descriptions were given by Paul the Apostle. One man. 
gave these, and then I want to look at what this one man says to us in regards to his life, because he lived this. This man suffered greatly for Jesus Christ. Well, what does he say to us as a result? He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So right when we say, well, that was just Paul, Jesus, and then Paul. It was just that first generation of the church that needed to go through this, and now we're all perfected. That's ridiculous. Anyone that would even come to such a ridiculous conclusion. Therefore, I urge you, this is Paul speaking, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Who? Paul. What did I say, 23 of the 30 came from Paul. That's what he said. That was his commission, his command from God to him. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern so what's the pattern of Christianity? How am I supposed to live it? How am I supposed to act when the spear strikes my side? What is supposed to come out of me? Hmm. Well, you have a pattern. You may not like the pattern, but you have yourself a pattern. Imitate me. How are we supposed to imitate Paul? Just as I also imitate Christ. Who's Paul's pattern? Jesus. Who's our pattern? Paul. Whose pattern is Jesus. The way Jesus lived is the way that Paul patterned his life. And the way that Paul patterned his life, we are exhorted and commissioned to build after the same pattern. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Listen to this Hebrews 2. This is that 30th one that I mentioned. For it was fitting for him, speaking of Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And then Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I love this line. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This is the great drive. Now, Philippians 3.10, as those of you that have studied it know, there's a lot more girth to it. But this is just cutting to the chase on it. He says, that I may. And he wants Christ. That's what he wants. He wants Jesus. And his great longing, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, who wants that? Paul does. And he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I urge you, therefore, brethren, imitate me. Imitate what you see, what you're hearing in me what you're watching in me. Do these things. Look at this, being conformed to his death. His death is a pattern. There's a pattern to his death of him giving up all, of carrying burden and suffering for others and for the strength that others would have life. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. The same mind as who? The same mind as Jesus who suffered in the body. Jesus suffered in the body. And Peter is saying, arm yourselves with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now I know that sounds like an oversimplification. There's a few things in here that are a little confusing. For instance, Jesus was perfected through suffering. Wasn't he just perfect? It is talking about the process that that which is necessary for humanity to become as it ought to become Yes, Jesus was perfect. He was of divine origin, conceived by the Father. He lived sinless in every regard. So it was not a purging 
of that which many of us still need purging. It was a preparation just as wheat must fall into the ground and die to produce fruit. Guess what? He was wheat, a corn of wheat, and he must fall into the ground and die. And he was bread. And for that wheat to be made ready for the bread, it must be crushed and the chaff must be removed. This is the pattern. And he set it for us. Understanding suffering. Jesus must suffer. Now, first of all, I could, I could give you, since we've gone through canon in the, in the school, you know the principle of canon, and that is that the Messiah must match perfectly with the Old Testament prophecies. And I could say just from that vantage point, Jesus must suffer. Otherwise, he's not the Messiah. But I want to lay out a principle here. Jesus, as the perfect man, must suffer. And he answered and told them, it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said it not. For that time forth, from that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Luke 17, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. It's a must. There's no way around it. This is a necessary feature in the Christ life. Okay, now, for most of us, we can accept that. Well, the Christ had a unique calling. He was called to bear the sins of, of dying humanity. Okay, I mean, that, obviously, he needed to suffer. Paul must suffer. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel. God is speaking to a man named Ananias, not Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias, but Ananias, who was the one that came to Paul and, and prayed over him, and, and scales fell off his eyes and he could see again. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, Ananias, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. Well, it's like, thanks, God. Appreciate that. Uh, you rescue me, and then you need to show me how great things I must suffer for your sake? It's like that's the message that he gives to Ananias. Yep, and I'm going to show Paul how great things he must suffer for my sake. How many of us are too interested in that conversation with God? Well, that conversation is sort of this morning. You must suffer. All right, let me say it correctly since there's a question mark after it. You must suffer? Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. No man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Okay, now, this is a statement from Paul, and he's saying, hey, guys, you should not be moved by these afflictions. Why? Because you know that you were appointed to them. Now, I'm not a big fan of the word puberty, okay? It's an awkward word, all right? Moms love that word. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, you're going through puberty. I don't want to go through puberty. 
Puberty is an appointment within a young boy's life, in a young girl's life. I just know it from the guy angle here. And you can't escape it. You just go through it. Because to become what you ought to be for this body physiologically and emotionally and psychologically, to become what it must, you must brave the winds of puberty. No man should be moved by this puberty. For yourselves know that we are appointed there unto puberty. It's the same thing, but in this case, it's afflictions. You are appointed to it. It is part of the growth. It is part of the purification. It is part of what his body must endure. And you're saying, his body, I'm me, I'm Eric Ludi. Well, and you're saying, I'm not Eric Ludi. (laughs) You're whoever you are, okay? But you're saying, that's Jesus, and you're his body. That's exactly right. Be not thou therefore ashamed of this testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. You have the lion heart given you. Why? So that you could partake with a lamb heart of the afflictions of the gospel. You have been given the power of God. You've been given the fire within. The resolve to rise up and say, take me. Take me, use me. You need the lion heart. You need the indwelling fire of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. But you have it. So that out of you will not flow fire in that sense, but rivers of living water. In other words, the body of Christ must suffer. Jesus must suffer. Paul must suffer. The body of Christ must suffer. That's us. Jesus is the body of Christ. Paul was the body of Christ. And we, strangely, are the body of Christ. Why must the body suffer? It's a good question. Well, I'm going to give you, I think it's five or six things here. I don't remember what it is, so I don't want to proclaim what it is. But the first thing is for the perfecting of the saints. Embracing the tribular. Why must a piece of wheat go through tribulation? Why must that grain go through it? To be made perfect and removed of all impurity. It's not because God hates the wheat. It's not because God has it in for the wheat. It's because of the way wheat is built. You know that that chaff is actually part of the health of that wheat all throughout its growing season? It's what preserves it and protects it. But there is a time when that husk, that chaff must be removed. There's an appointment for that grain of wheat. The tribular awaits. And your life has an appointment with affliction. Accept it. Instead of trying to hide from the dentist, hide from the tribular in this situation, say, Paul seemed to like it. Paul seemed to rejoice. I don't know what it is and what it's going to feel like, but I trust my God. I trust that my God is not going to abuse me and harm me, but he's going to make me whole. He's going to perfect me. He's going to make me what I ought to be. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, he makes you perfect. He establishes and strengthens and settles you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, when the tribular comes off and starts beating against you, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, which is endurance of soul, hupomone. 
but let patience have its perfect work. Why? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These trials are the benefit of that which grows you up to become as Christ is. That's the way God does it. Number two, why suffering? Why? Why is this necessary? God, you're God. Couldn't you redefine the system? Why would he come up with this? This is a terrible idea, God. I don't like it. It's for the revelation of glory. You see, there's something inside of us that God has put in there. Remember the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints? Christ in us, the hope of glory. But Christ being in you, if it doesn't come out, hey, what good is that? It needs to come out. How does it come out? Well, it can come out in all sorts of different ways, and we all know that. It's not just suffering. It can come out in all sorts of different ways, but God's primary means of revealing his glory on earth is in how the saints of God respond to suffering, to affliction and tribulation. That is the revelation of glory. All throughout the New Testament it says it. All over the place. And so I can't go into all those, but I can at least show you a few things. It's that which is drawn out through the spear. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. How do you like that for a line? How many of us stick that on our refrigerator? Oh, I love it. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. When we allow that death to work in us, life gushes forth. What was Jesus doing? Death was working in him, and yet what came out of his side? His life was poured forth. So, though he was dying, he was bequeathing to us everything that brings us here today. We have life because of his suffering. We have life because of his death. Thank you, Jesus, for your suffering. Are we willing to be the channel through which that life of Christ gained on the cross, now in us, is able to go out to others? Are we willing to have our side pierced and when it is, out gushes life for others? That's the pattern that has been set for us at the cross. Number three, why suffering? It's for overcoming evil. It's for knocking the devil in the teeth. There is nothing that is more harmful. You ever heard the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? There is nothing that aggravates the enemy more. When he pierces your side, he's wanting you to hold a grievance. He's wanting you to get upset. He's wanting you to strike back. Instead, when you respond with love and out of you flows a river of living water, it crushes the powers of the devil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, with godliness, with the river of life. In other words, the enemy's going to try and bait you. When you get stabbed in the back by a close friend, I tell you what, there is bait for grievance, there's bait for bitterness and resentment in such a scenario. There's bait for irritation, frustration. But when you respond, when those little pricks from anything in your life, whether they be small pricks or they be large gouges, out of you can flow rivers of living water and you can bring life to those around you. And you overcome evil 
with good or with godness. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Again, not a typical uh, scripture for the refrigerator. We have been made the fil- as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Are you willing to be trampled underfoot by this world and have everything that comes out of you be love, 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 joy, 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 peace, peace, peace? I remember the statement of uh, David Wilkerson when he went to inner city New York and Nicky Cruz told him he, was gonna, he could cut him up into a thousand pieces. He says, and each one of those thousand pieces would cry out, I love you, Nicky. What's coming out of you? David Wilkerson knew what was going to come out of him. He was already predetermined to have that come out. The gushers coming. When you reject me, when you spit in my face, and when you strike me on the cheek, Nikki, I love you more. Out comes the gusher, and the world doesn't know what to do with it. It staggers them. What is that? Listen to this line in Philippians. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. When Nikki Cruz comes up to you and spits on your face and strikes you on the cheek, do not, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or destruction, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake." And that's, it says that it was granted to you. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. It was granted to you to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Why suffering? It's for the love of our king. Do you remember the story of the bondservant in the Old Testament? He was set free by his master. And yet out of love for his king, he returns. And he says, I will serve you for life. Why do we come back to our suffering Messiah? Because of love. What moves us to be where he is? We, we talked about the illustration. We were giving a message this week at Ellerslie that there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. Narrow in scripture means a way of difficulty and compression. Well, the way of the broad way looks easy. Yeah, it leads to death and destruction, but it looks easy. A lot more comfortable. Why in the world would any of us choose the narrow way? Because this is where Jesus is. Jesus is on the narrow path. I don't want to go anywhere without him. It's for the love of my king. I will endure whatever because I get to be with him. Wherever he goes, I go. Whithersoever the lamb was to go, they went. It's for the love of our king. Philippians 3 says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You're going to notice this concept of for him, unto Christ. I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want Jesus. I don't care what it costs me. If it's a narrow way of difficulty and compression, so be it. I want Christ. I want the fellowship of his way. I'll walk the narrow way. I'll share in his suffering. I'll be conformed into the pattern of his death. I'm for it. I want it. 
because that's how you find Jesus. You want Jesus? You walk the way he walks. Why suffering? Number five is for the love of the brethren. I don't usually use the word brethren. It's sort of an old-fashioned word, but it seemed to fit here. It's not just the congregation of believers, but it's the family, the brethren. It's, it's the close kinship that we have, that we will gladly lay down our lives for each other. Now, I have a little thing in uh, a parenthetical statement. It's not the lamb that was slain worthy. Now, if any of you have listened to the Paris Reedhead sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt, there's this one line where these Moravian missionaries that are going off to their death shout, you know, one guy sticks his hand in the air and says, it's not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. Yeah, who's the reward of his suffering? You guys, those out there that still not yet, have still not yet heard. And what do we say? It's not the lamb that was slain worthy. There are more brethren out there. Spend me, Lord Jesus. I will suffer. Pour out what is in me for them. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's, elect's that is a hard word to say, for the elect's sakes, wow, uh, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He endures all things. He goes through great difficulty. Why? For the elect, that they would be in Christ. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. It doesn't matter if you care about me. If you take care of me, I will spend and be spent for you. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He was a prisoner for them. And then it says, he faints not, or he says, wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations. Who are they for? For them. Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Are you willing to be poured out for someone else's faith? For someone else's walk with God? That's Christianity. Why suffering? Number six, for the filling up of what is left. This is a strange one for many of us, and we don't quite know how to deal with it, and so we just sort of skip over it. What is left? There is something still left and needful in suffering in the body of Christ. Now, I didn't come up with it. I'm just saying that's what it says in Scripture. This statement, how long, O Lord? I'll read the Scripture of where that comes from. It's not this one. It's the next one, I think. I I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my body what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now we know that Christ finished the work. He did what he needed to do to condemn sin and death. He's victorious. However, there's something still needful, as you'll see in even this next scripture in Revelation. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Another way of saying is, how long, O Lord, will you restrain your lion heart? How long, O Lord, will you be the lamb? How long, O Lord, will the side of the saints of God be pierced and you flow out rivers of living water? Instead of giving them their rightful due, judgment, and guess what most of us would say? Not how long, O Lord, but thanks for being so long that you would include me. 
instead of just getting mad that the Lord has taken a long time, to be appreciative of the fact that our God has endured and long-suffered to restrain his fire from coming forth and to give us rivers of living water in this season instead of what we deserve. But those that have died, there is a justice, there is a balance that is being swayed and that needs to be dealt with because this is unrighteousness and this is unjust and it must be righted. And the fire of God awaits. But listen to this. It says, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. There's a number, there's an amount of brethren and fellow servants that need to be killed for the word of God. Do we raise our hand for that one and say, um, I know you're needing those, and he's not just going to pick us just because we raise our hand. It's a special privilege. This is the highest honor to earn the martyr's crown, to be spent in body in totality, not just suffer in body, but to die in body for the sake of Jesus Christ. But who would be killed as they were was completed. Lamb-hearted suffering the nuclear weapon in the Christian arsenal. Nick Thompson asked me a question. It was quite a few months ago, and I don't even know if he remembers asking it. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the, in the flesh or in the body, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He's talking about this weaponry that is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so the question was, what are our weapons? It just says that we have weapons. What are our weapons? And I think some of us know what many of those weapons are. Prayer and obedience, for instance, are weaponry that we have. But what I would like to propose here is that the great weapon that we have as the saints of God, and so this is for you, Nick, as far as my answer, even though it took a few months, is that it's lamb-hearted suffering. When we suffer as lambs, and what comes out of us when we are pierced is the life of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, the mercies of Jesus Christ, that it literally is the nuclear reactor in this earth that detonates, and that literally overcomes evil. The five keys to lamb-hearted suffering. Piece number one, embracing weakness. For it is a fertile soil from which strength thunders forth. We don't want to be weak. I mean, we sp here we are. The whole thing we're doing at Ellerslie is being made strong. Why? So that we could be poured out. And in the process of being poured out, you begin to recognize that weakness is one of the things that attends to your life. You are being trampled upon at various points. You are under siege from a hostile realm constantly. Weakness is a pretty good description for it. That doesn't mean you lose your lion heart and you yield your soul. It's that your body is weak. This is difficult. It's not easy. That's why we must endure till the end. So peace one, embrace weakness. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. 
but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So when do you find the strength of God? It's in weakness. So you learn to embrace this weakness, because then you become the thoroughfare of the power of God. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So we want to be strong for Jesus Christ? Embrace our weakness. We're little lambs. Piece number two, enduring every hardship with faith. You must be confident in your hardship. When all mountains are crumbling to the sea and earth and sky are peeling away and we are enduring difficulty, we must remain steadfast knowing that our God has promised and he cannot lie and he keeps the feet of his saints. For God himself will oversee your success. There hath no temptation, you could say trial or affliction or tribulation, taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able but will with the temptation or the trial or the affliction or the tribulation or the suffering also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. This isn't just dealing with temptation. This is dealing with that which comes against and lays siege on your life. Anything that opposes you, anything that threatens you, would you have a confidence? Remember what this one was? It's enduring hardships with confidence. Is this true? That your God will see you through it. He will see to your success. Do you have faith? Peace three, loving those who persecute. For this is how God responds. When God was persecuted, I mean, he did it. He exemplified it down here. How did he respond? What came out of him? What came back? When he was hated, he loved. This is the God response. So loving those who persecute. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Then, said Jesus, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. If there was any situation where a man was deserving of restraining himself from lending forgiveness, it would be the cross. And yet what Jesus did is precisely what he desires to do in you. And in and through you, he will love and he will say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Stephen, the first martyr, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Even his last thought is love, mercies. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Piece number four, suffering with joy. This is how lamb-like suffering works. I know that each of us could have our unique situation and say, well, in my situation, I, I can't respond that way. You don't understand. My situation was completely unjust. Hmm. Well, like I said, the cross is the greatest symbol of injustice you've ever seen, which is why it's called the propitiation of the atonement for sin. It literally is the God of the universe being the sacrifice, the God of the universe taking the weight and the penalty and the punishment that was rightfully yours. Yes, it's unjust. It's unjust for what Jesus did. And yes, it might be unjust that you give love in response, but you give precisely what Jesus gave. Yes, justice, 
might be to strike them. Blow for blow, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That is justice. But justice and vengeance lies with the Lord and the lion heart of God to one day come. It's not yours. Yours is to give the lamb heart. That is your job description. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. We suffer with joy. I know that sounds like the opposite. When you're suffering, most of you aren't thinking of joy. But joy is what God places within you. It's not something you drum up, and it's not situational and circumstantial. It is from God. It is a gift from God that your joy may be full. He wants you to abide in him, to be in him, to be found in him, so that gusher, that river of living water can burst forth from underneath the throne. Listen to this list. I have different scriptures. This one just happens to be 1 Peter 1. And I'm going to give the suffering, which is, in this case, we are grieved by many trials. Well, when you're grieved by many trials, how do you respond? Yeah, it's a bad, dark day in your life, isn't it? But what is the response given in 1 Peter 1? We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Who's right? Is your response right or is this response right? Test it. Who's right? I go with Scripture. I know you have your excuses and I know you have your reasonings why your suffering is different. But I'm here to tell you, your action in responding incorrectly is wrong. You need to respond the way Jesus Christ has prepared us to respond. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And that means everything you need to respond with joy in suffering. Matthew 5, the suffering is we are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. The response Blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. In the Luke version of this, it says leap for joy. Leap. 1 Peter 4, the suffering. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. The response, we may be glad with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 7, the suffering. We endure tribulations. The response, we are exceeding joyful. James 1, the suffering. We face trials and testings. The response, we count it all joy. Piece number five, persevering with hope, for hope will not disappoint. Romans 8 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Okay, I don't know what God has for you specifically, but you can endure it with hope. You can face it with hope. You can face it with a complete confidence. Not only will God carry you through it, but you will not be ravaged by it. There's a tribular, tribular up ahead, God. I, I, I feel a little vulnerable to that tribular, that tribulation that lies before me. You'll be preserved. Don't worry. Nothing can separate you from my love. I'm just removing the husk. I'm just allowing this so that that chaff can be purged and burned up. You can be confident in me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or tribular? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Listen to Paul. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, you're the kernel of wheat. What is being separated from you isn't Christ. You have Christ. 
And though something is being removed from you, and it might be your right arm is lopped off, you are not being separated from Christ. And though your head be severed and removed, though your skin be peeled back, yeah, there's a lot worse than that I could come up with. You cannot be separated from Jesus Christ. You have hope to endure this, to face it with love, faith, joy. There's an endurance of the saints of God. So when to be the lion and when to be the lamb? This is sort of a trick. You're supposed to have a lion heart, but you don't want to growl and breathe fire in the wrong moments. We have that tendency. When the flesh gets involved in our life, we can call all sorts of things righteous indignation. And we can bark at people under the banner of godliness when in fact it is merely our selfishness speaking. When to be the lion and when to be the lamb. The lion heart must be used exclusively against that which Jesus came to judge, that which he showed his lion heart towards. When Jesus suffered and died, you know that he showed a lion heart and he judged something? He did. He judged something. What was that? Sin? The devil? The flesh? The powers of darkness. What else did he oppose? Religious Phariseeism? Corruption of innocence? Extortion of the weak and vulnerable? That which pollutes his house? He did. A little lion heart coming out of Jesus there. And yet he came as a lamb. He didn't come to judge uh, the world but to save it. Not to judge sinners but to save them. And so he did come to judge something. He did come to breathe fire, if you will. But the lamb heart must be used toward that which Jesus came to rescue. Men and women, whether evil or good. You see, we have a lot of evil men on this world. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I've studied of men and women in prison being persecuted. And what comes out of them towards their persecutors is love. I mean, there's this story of Betsy Ten Boom in a concentration camp getting beaten. And all she's thinking about is the poor soul that is beating her and how far from Jesus he is at this moment. And she's praying for him, begging Christ to rescue him. Who does that? The lamb heart. What's coming out of Betsy? The river of living water. But what's coming out of us? (laughs) Because we've endured far less than that. I don't know how many of you have been in a heap in the fetal position on the ground and been beaten by a rod. Some of you may have. What comes out of us in those moments? Is it petitions and prayers for their salvation? I want you to realize you have been bequeathed everything you need for in those moments to let the rivers of living water come forth out of your innermost. So here we go. This is the conclusions that we're going to bring this all together. The lion-hearted lamb. That's you. Another way that I've oftentimes said it, you are little lambs of the faces of lions. In other words, you're little lambs, but you have lion hearts. You see, you have hearts that are not put down by the intimidation of the enemy. And though you may appear passive in certain situations in your physical body, you are anything but passive inside your soul. You resist the devil, and he will flee. You're built for battle to fight the good fight. And yet, fighting the good fight oftentimes might mean allowing that spear to pierce your side and giving up your hands and your feet to the nails and dying, and dying with the breaths of love upon your mouth. The lion-hearted lamb. To be wronged, but to not allow your soul to go wrong, this is the Christian victory. You see, when someone offends you, 
and you are not contorted to the enemy's design for that offense, and you do not take offense, you do not respond with acid, but you respond correctly and you guard your soul, that's a lion-hearted lamb. That's Christian victory. The enemy's trying to get you. And he will use other Christians. He'll use family members. He specializes in that to create grievance, to create offense. And if he can do that, he wins. However, to be wronged but to not allow your soul to go wrong, this is the Christian victory. To be struck on the cheek but to not give way to anger, offense, or grievance within, this is the Christian means of waging war. For by, lion-hearted lamb, for, that, for by a lion, lion-hearted lamb response, the glory of God is made manifest in this earth and the powers of the enemy are set back. To be asked to carry an unjust load and an unjust distance, I should say an unjust distance, and to carry it with lion-hearted lambness intact is to create an open heaven for the souls of lost ones to witness the supernatural grace of the Almighty. Is it unjust? Yes, it's an unjust load that they're putting on your back. And yes, it's an unjust distance. But to carry it with the lamb, lamb heart gushing forth, to carry it breathing life and joy, could you imagine having a little skip in your step as you're carrying the unjust load and unjust distance? What does it do? It shocks the world around you. No one responds that way. You're right. Jesus is the only one that would respond that way. And Jesus lives in you. That's how the glory of God is made manifest. That's how the people of this earth that are lost suddenly begin to realize that he's real, he's alive. To be asked to perpetrate evil and to say no with a lion-hearted vehemence. Now let's stop there. If you are asked to perpetrate evil and defile your conscience, what happens? Your lion heart shouts, no, I cannot do that. And then as a result, you suffer great pain with lamb-hearted love. Well, this is to truly bring pleasure to the heart of God. You see, your lion heart was employed properly, and that was to defend that which is pure, to stand up for that which is right. And yet, in the process of doing it, you're suffering as a Christian. And to God, that's good. To see someone else unjustly struck on the cheek and to stand up with lion-hearted indignation is to serve the course of justice and thusly the course of King Jesus. When you were abused... You allow the lamb to come forth. But when others are abused, you don't just sit by. You stand up with lion-hearted indignation to their defense. Take me instead. That's the Christian. Take me. If someone is going to suffer, I want to be it. You see weak ones around you. A Christian is built to stand against injustice, not to stand passive. We have a lion heart, and we must do something. But when we are the victim, when we are the one being trounced under, what must come out of us is the lamb heart. The martyr's pastor. So this is the original title I had for this message, and now this is how I'm going to finish it. I've been spending two weeks on the meditation of being the pastor of a church that is suffering great indignations, great abuse, great suffering. And how do I answer their questions? And so I just have a short list of questions. When they command me to renounce my king, what am I supposed to do? When they threaten to harm my wife and children, I mean, these things are tough because they're going to kill you. They're going to force your body into situations and contortions and difficulties that it's not meant to go through, which means extreme pain and difficulty. How are we going to walk through this? Well, what about if my allegiance to Jesus Christ causes suffering to those around me? 
That's one of the number one threats an evil empire will wield against good people is their pity and compassion upon others. Well, how about when they abuse me? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to respond? Can I respond correctly? Do I have what it takes? When I'm sitting in squalor, how can I meditate upon things that are above? When the stench is so strong and offensive and I'm there for week after week after week. Dear pastor, last night they beat my feet with rods because I said I could not sign the document. The pain was great. I passed out somewhere along the way and woke up in the middle of the night in a black prison chamber lying in filth. They must have sent me into isolation. It is a sickening place. I can hardly breathe down here in this squalor. My body is racked with pain. My feet are broken to pieces and seem utterly useless. They are swollen up like, hmm, that didn't get finished there. I have nothing for the pain. Tell me what to do. So you can think of a good metaphor for what they're swollen up like. What do I say? What is my response? I have men and women that I love that are enduring great difficulty. How do I train them? Do I care about them? Of course. Do I like to see them in misery and pain? No. I want to see them healthy, strong, robust. And yet, I know what they are commissioned to. Remember what Paul said? Hey, you guys know that what you're facing is just what you're appointed to. Rejoice. Rejoice. That's what Paul says. So dear lion-hearted lambs, this is my response. This is my open letter to the underground church. You must be lion-hearted. Never for a minute touch the self-pity that is knocking on your soul. It will crush you. When you're in those moments of lowness, you know what you begin to feel? You feel like the victim. Woe is me. Don't touch the self-pity. If there is a time for a lion heart, it's right now. Rise up! Stir your soul! Rouse yourself to battle! But not a battle to strike out at your persecutors. A battle against temptation. A battle against pity. A battle against self-centeredness. This isn't about you. This is for the glory of your king. This suffering is not strange, but precisely what God promised you would face. You have grace for this suffering and will not be tested or tempted beyond what you can bear. God promises that this suffering will only make you stronger. By the power of the Spirit of God, you can endure this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You must mind your soul with lion-hearted vigilance. Don't allow a grievance to form and forgive with lamb-hearted mercies. No matter what they do to you or to those you love, choose to let the lamb-hearted graces of our precious Jesus pour out of your pierced side. As Pastor Wormbrandt says, God's love, even in the face of torture, is always the best of ways. That's the best way. What am I supposed to do in this situation? They are cruel. They are heartless. They are unfeeling. And they're showing no mercy. God's love, even in the face of torture, is always the best of ways. And when they strike you on the cheek, you whisper, I just need you to know that I love you. Who does that? Who has that come out of them in such a time? The saints of God. Keep your mind on God's word. Repeat it to yourselves throughout the day. Remember the precious words of Christ. Carve them into the walls. Share them with those around you. Treat it as your daily bread and it will sustain you in the hungriest and darkest hour. Sometimes that's all the saints of God have in a prison cell is the word of God in memory. And it becomes their food. 
And they literally chew on it and find satisfaction when they're being starved. You have the word of God. Start treating it as if it's precious now. So that if you're ever removed from the actual text version of it, you have it stored inside of you. And you can feed on it. And you can live on it. Don't grow low. Don't take on the attitude of the environment. In other words, don't, what's the term the English would use? Don't get down in the mouth. Don't grow low. Don't take on the attitude of the environment. It's dark. It's oppressive. It's depressed. And so you can easily begin to be morose and down. No, no, no. No, no, no. But rather sing songs of praise. Rejoice. Make the chains your instruments. Leap for joy. And you're like, I can't. I'm seated on the ground, chained there. Kick your feet with joy. Do whatever you can. There's a gusher inside of you. You change the atmosphere in which you are at with Jesus. He's a light in the darkest place. And let him be a light. Let him be a river of life now. Remember those that are in chains about you around the world. You know what? That's what it says for you to be doing now. Remember those that are in chains. But what does a pastor tell someone who's suffering? Remember those that are in chains around you and around the world. Don't think of yourself. Realize that there are others that are suffering even to a greater degree than you are right now. Think of them. Pray for them. Remember them. Turn outward and make the suffering around you your priority and the subject of your praying. Could you imagine someone in solitary confinement praying for others around the world that are suffering? Yeah, that's what you do. Jesus is the one praying for us. Stephen being stoned is praying for those around him. What a strange thing to do when you're the one suffering. That's the secret to suffering. Forget yourself and spend and be spent for those dying around you. Wash the feet of the other prisoners. Clean their wounds. Share with them your food. Supply them your blanket. Do unto them as Jesus did unto you. There was this one model in a Chinese prison where they were in solitary confinement. It was just filth. I mean, years of filth where men in their... That which came out of men was literally all over the cell, deep within the cell. It was like a sewage chamber. And these men would be thrown into it and pass out and throw up everything of sustenance in their body at the time just to add to the morass. And this one Chinese prisoner knew that there were guards outside that had to live in that squalor and that stench. And he appealed to them one day and he said, would you allow me on my hands and knees to clean this? For your sake. And I will clean every one of these stalls down here on my hands and knees. And he did. He washed out all the squalor in the entire underground prison system. And every time he was in one of the cells with someone who was anemic and hadn't talked with anyone in who knows how long, he would share the life of Jesus Christ. Well, I like that thought. You become the servant and guess what? You now have the opportunity to share Jesus. What's coming out of him? Rivers of living water. Wash the feet of the other prisoners, clean their wounds, share with them your food, supply them your blanket, do unto them as Jesus did unto you. You only have one blanket. All you have is your meal. Are you willing to give it up? What did Jesus give for you? He gave up everything. Wouldn't it be your privilege if you looked in that prison cell and you said, if that were Jesus, what would I do? If that were Jesus, I would give him everything I had. What a privilege this is. Go after the guards' souls. Seek to turn them to Jesus with your testimony. Love them even when they hate you. Be kind to them even when they hurt you. Forgive them even when they destroy you and destroy those you love. Ache for their souls, for they are lost and know not what they are doing. 
I know this seems like a strange title screen here for this message. Repentance means to change your mind. It also means to turn away and defile that which is other. You have had the wrong mindset in regards to suffering. Many of you. I can't just say all of you. But if this shoe fits, we have to wear it. And that is that it is a bad thing. It is a harmful thing. It is an abusive thing. It is anti-heaven. Well, in heaven you will not suffer, so you're correct. But when heaven came to this earth, he willingly suffered and rejoiced in that suffering. And then those that have followed in his train throughout all these thousands of years, these 2,000 years since his resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit and the formation of the church, they have suffered well. And they have suffered rightly. And we represent a culture which has no idea how to suffer. We are scared of it and we don't want it. And yet, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to become what it ought to become in this generation, we must embrace suffering. We must embrace the tribular, the tribulation that is appointed for us. We must repent. We must change our mind. We must change our mind about suffering, afflictions, trials, and testings. We must change our mind about tribulation. What does God say? He declares it is that which builds us strong, that which supplies us endurance, and that which crafts our character, and that through which God's glory is made manifest. Can you think of any moment in all of history where the glory of God was made more manifest than the cross? And yet what was the cross but suffering and death? And yet that was the greatest picture of the glory of of God ever in world history. And it came through suffering. That is God's channel and God's mean. We want God to be glorified, but are we willing? Are we willing to accept the afflictions, the tribulations that are appointed for us instead of shoo them away and complain about them? Are we willing to rejoice in them and become a thoroughfare, a channel through which the rivers of living water can gush forth? We must receive the wounds gladly. So we must, these are the two actions I want us to take as we're closing. We must repent. We must deliberately in our mind say, that's wrong. This was wrong. And God, you're right. My attitude about suffering was incorrect. Don't nurture it. Don't coddle it. Repent of it. Defile it. Turn away from it and turn to God's truth. Who's right? God is. You're wrong. If you disagree with God's word, you're wrong. Repent of it. And then we must gladly receive, we must receive the wounds gladly. Gladly. Charles Spurgeon. Oh, if we could be wise enough to choose, even were as wise as the Lord himself, we would choose the troubles which he has appointed to us. And we would not spare ourselves a single pang. Wow. I recognize that the American church doesn't understand these things. We have tried to avoid these things. Certain scriptures we just sort of gloss over. We know what it says, but we make it poetry, and we make it early church, or we make it just Jesus. But I want you to realize this is the body of Christ. The body of Christ will suffer persecution. The body of Christ will endure affliction. The body of Christ will go through tribulation. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. Do not consider it strange, but arm yourselves with the same mind as Christ had, the mind to suffer in the body. 
He was armed with it. He was ready for it. It's going to come. Embrace it. And embrace it with joy. And when that spear comes into your side, allow the life to come out. Allow that which God has put in you. If you do not have a lamb heart, beg God for the indwelling life of Jesus Christ. Because you must have the lamb heart. This generation, our weaponry, the mighty weaponry that we have, is the lamb heart and the lamb-like suffering that we can give, that we can pour out and give the love of Jesus Christ when we are struck. Let's pray. Father, many of us are afraid to die, but I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would equip us. And just as we suffer, uh, we celebrate baptisms today, and we celebrate the death of our old man. May we celebrate the fact that we are already dead and there's nothing the enemy can do to us. We are already dead. There's nothing the enemy can do to us. We fear nothing but the living God. For we are free from fear. Lord Jesus, may we live as you have called us to live, abundantly and triumphantly, as lion-hearted lambs. It's in the precious name of our great King we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.